Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping, rape, and murder that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Randy and Catherine Hurst were on pins and needles. They were waiting for a message from their daughter's kidnappers, a terrorist organization called the Symbionese Liberation Army. In the month following Patricia's kidnapping, the Hursts had received regular messages from the SLA, updating them on her safety and the group's demands. But it had been several days since their last communication. Randy and Catherine were worried. Finally, a local radio station announced they had received a taped message from the SLA, but there was a new voice on this recording, one the Hursts recognized. The voice said, quote, I no longer fear the SLA because they are not the ones who want me to die. I realize it is the FBI who wants to murder me, end quote. Randy and Catherine were devastated by their daughter's words. After a month in captivity, Patricia Hurst seemed to have aligned with her captors. Could it be true? Could their teenage daughter now be a terrorist? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi. I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today we're talking about Patricia Hurst, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974. During her captivity, she joined the terrorist organization in their crimes. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. 
Patricia Hearst is best known for taking part in a 1974 San Francisco bank robbery as a converted member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. In addition to kidnapping Patricia, the SLA committed several acts of terrorism, including murders and bombings as part of their mission to take down capitalist America, and Patricia joined them. This ignited a conversation across the country, speculating why Patricia had sided with criminals. Had she been brainwashed? Or had she willingly defected to the leftist revolution? In part one, we'll cover Patricia's upbringing, her fraught relationship with her mother, and her initial months of captivity. In part two, we'll focus on Patricia's crime spree with the SLA, her eventual arrest, and where she is today. Patricia Hurst was born on February 20th, 1954, in San Francisco. She was the middle child of five daughters, born to Randy and Catherine Hurst. She never met her grandfather, newspaper magnate William Randolph Hurst, but his reputation preceded her everywhere she went. He was the basis for Orson Welles' classic film, Citizen Kane. Patricia had never seen the movie and didn't care to. Patricia's oldest sister, also named Catherine, struggled with health problems. This made Patricia's mother turn to religion for solace. By the time Patricia was born in 1954, her mother was strict, traditional, and a very devout Catholic. Patricia's mother was so traditional, she believed girls and young women should never be seen underdressed in public. Her daughters couldn't wear jeans when they went into the city. They had to dress up. Catherine sent the girls to Catholic school and governed what they could and couldn't do on a daily basis, perhaps in a stricter manner than necessary. In addition to the dress code, Patricia wasn't allowed to ride her bicycle the couple of miles to school with her friends, or even attend slumber parties. This kind of controlling relationship may have had a negative effect on Patricia's self-confidence as she grew up. Before we delve into psychology, a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Mothers who strictly govern every aspect of their daughter's life may give their daughter the idea that she can't be trusted to make her own choices. According to Peg Streep, author of Daughter Detox, this kind of behavior tells the daughter that she is, quote, inadequate, cannot be trusted to exercise good judgment, and would simply flounder and fail without her mother's guidance, end quote. While Patricia wilted under her mother's treatment, she enjoyed a very positive relationship with her father, Randy. They went duck hunting, played sports, and relaxed together. In the summers, they visited Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California with their dogs. Summer was Patricia's favorite time of the year because she hated going to school. In her autobiography, she noted that she wasn't a bad student. She got fine grades, but she was constantly butting heads with the nuns at her Catholic Convent of the Sacred Heart in San Francisco. The nuns yelled at their students, berating them. In Patricia's autobiography, she recounted a time a nun yelled in her face, to which she fired back, go to hell. Despite her behavior, it was never quite bad enough for them to expel her. It came in spurts. For high school, Patricia was sent to another Catholic institution, Santa Catalina School. It was a boarding school in Monterey, about two hours south of San Francisco. 14-year-old Patricia hated being so far away from home. Once again, she warred with the nuns and racked up scores of demerits for misbehaving. 
She had to work off these demerits in order to gain certain privileges back, including going home on weekends. Being at boarding school far from home puts emotional stress on children and can cause feelings of depression and helplessness. Psychologists Nick Duffel and Joy Cheverin refer to this as boarding school syndrome. Some outcomes of boarding school syndrome are feelings of pride and endurance and denial of pain. These traits can be seen in the way Patricia dealt with her kidnapping later on. Though her parents probably didn't realize the psychological impact boarding school was having on their daughter, they knew she hated it. By sophomore year, Patricia reached a breaking point. Randy drove down to Santa Catalina for a weekend visit, and the nuns told Patricia she wasn't allowed to see him due to her demerits. She was furious. According to her autobiography, she told the nuns, Either I go to lunch with my father, or I'm going to fly home and have dinner with him tonight in San Francisco, and you can pack my bags and ship them up to me. I honestly don't care what you do, because I won't be coming back here next year, no matter what." End quote. The nuns gave in. And for her junior year of high school in 1971, Patricia enrolled in Crystal Springs School for Girls in Hillsborough. She lived with her parents and sisters year-round for the first time in years. But this also meant that she was once again subjected to her mother's controlling nature. In an act of rebellion, 16-year-old Patricia started secretly dating her younger sister's 23-year-old geometry teacher, Stephen Weed. There are obviously many issues with this. But for Patricia, the relationship with Stephen was a chance to prove to herself that she could do whatever she wanted outside of her mother's influence and that her decisions were correct. Patricia graduated high school early and started taking classes at Menlo Junior College in 1972, moving into the dorms on campus. She continued her relationship with Stephen, spending so much time with him, she described that they practically lived together. She didn't tell Randy and Catherine Hurst about the relationship until she graduated from Menlo a year later. When the Hursts finally met Stephen, they didn't like him. As a liberal academic, he just wasn't the kind of guy they had pictured for their daughter. He had also failed Patricia's younger sister in geometry class, so he didn't exactly get an unbiased first impression. According to Jeffrey Tubin's book on Patricia's kidnapping, American Heiress, Catherine urged Patricia to break up with Stephen, be a debutante, and go to Stanford University. Patricia refused, continuing the relationship. When Stephen was accepted to UC Berkeley for graduate school in the fall of 1972, Patricia decided to transfer to Berkeley to be with him. After they moved in together, Stephen was condescending toward Patricia, as if it was his job to knock her down to earth. He never let her forget their seven-year age difference, invoking his experience at every turn. When they first started dating, Patricia liked that he was a teacher and mentor to her. But now that she was out of high school, it bothered her. In her autobiography, Patricia notes, quote, It seemed that as the months rolled by, our usual sarcastic jests with one another took on a more serious, biting, hurting tone. Perhaps it was simply that I was growing up and was no longer satisfied to adore him. I did not realize the unfairness of his making all the decisions in the house." End quote. Stephen decided everything. What they ate, when they ate, what they did, who they hung out with, and so on. Because Patricia grew up resenting her mother for this very same controlling behavior, this was likely a source of tension in her relationship with Stephen. 
and it couldn't have helped Patricia's already diminished self-confidence. According to American Heiress, once during a dispute at the dinner table, Stephen picked Patricia up and deposited her outside their front door until he decided she had cooled off enough to be readmitted to their home. This wasn't the only example of this kind of behavior, which lines up with what experts consider emotional abuse. In emotionally abusive relationships, it can be difficult for a person to identify that what's happening is actually abuse. According to Dr. Steven Stosny, author of Love Without Hurt, emotional abuse leads victims to blame themselves. Stosny says, emotional abuse seems more personal than physical abuse, more about you as a person, more about your spirit. Steven's behavior may have been damaging to Patricia's sense of self-worth. She noted that she felt depressed and even mildly suicidal during this time. Though, to be fair to Stephen, she was friendless and directionless at the time, spending her first Berkeley semester as a homemaker before starting classes midway through the school year in January 1973. Regardless of whether or not she was being abused, Patricia felt trapped, not sure how to change her circumstances. In her autobiography, she wrote, quote, at one point, I considered joining the Navy and seeing the world. It was a way out, but it was not very practical. At another point, I slipped into an emotional depression that lasted about two weeks, in which I felt that life was closing in on me." End quote. However, in late 1973, Patricia and Stephen got engaged. Patricia was 19. The engagement was her idea. She was young for marriage, even in 1973. But both her sister and mother had gotten married at 18, and Patricia put pressure on herself to do the same. In her autobiography, she said, quote, I thought that marriage would satisfy me completely, end quote. Catherine Hurst, ever the traditionalist, insisted that they make an official engagement announcement in the newspaper. Randy ran a photograph in a short write-up in the Hearst's newspaper, The Examiner, in December 1973. The announcement noted that Patricia and Stephen were students at UC Berkeley. Little did Randy know, the announcement would make his daughter the target of a terrorist cell. Coming up, the night Patricia Hurst was blindfolded and abducted at gunpoint. Now, back to the story. In December of 1973, 19-year-old Patricia Hurst and 26-year-old Stephen Weed announced their engagement in one of the Hearst family's newspapers. The article did not mention a specific wedding date, as the couple was planning a long engagement. They had just started a new semester at UC Berkeley and wanted to focus on their schoolwork. On February 4, 1974, a few months after the announcement, Patricia and Stephen's doorbell rang. It was after 9 o'clock and they weren't expecting any guests, but perhaps it was Patricia's older sister, Virginia, who lived nearby. They also had friends from school who lived in the neighborhood. Maybe it was one of them. Stephen walked into the hallway and opened the door just a crack. There was a woman on the other side named Angela Atwood. She was upset. She said she backed into Stephen's car in the parking garage and asked if she could use his phone. Patricia immediately became annoyed. She and Stephen only had one car, her treasured MG Roadster. She was upset that this woman had hit it. Before Stephen or Patricia could answer one way or another, the door burst open. Two men rushed inside, pointing guns at the couple. 
One of the men, Donald DeFries, pushed Stephen to the floor and demanded to know where the safe was. Stephen told him there was no safe. He offered DeFries his wallet instead, telling him to take anything he wanted. Patricia ran into the kitchen. Angela Atwood ran after her. She stuck a gun in Patricia's face and directed her back to the front door. DeFries pushed Patricia down to the floor and told her not to move. He directed Atwood to tie her up. She tried to gag and blindfold her, but Patricia resisted. Finally, Atwood got Patricia to hold still long enough to put on the gag and blindfold. Patricia couldn't see or speak, but she could hear what was going on. And so could the neighbors. As Patricia and Stephen lay on the floor, their neighbor, 22-year-old Steve Suenaga, rushed into the house. He had heard the commotion and wanted to make sure everything was okay. DeFries tied Suenaga up as well, then knocked him out with the butt of a gun. With Swanaga distracting the invaders, Steve got up from the floor and ran toward the back door, out into the black night, leaving Patricia behind. DeFries grabbed her and carried her out the door. She managed to break free for a moment, trying to run to her car, but she didn't make it far before they caught her again. They put her into the trunk of a convertible. The lid slammed shut, thrusting Patricia into darkness. In total, the kidnapping took only four minutes, but it reverberated through the rest of Patricia Hurst's life. Patricia was frightened as she bumped along in the dark trunk of the car, but her mind was working, trying to plot an escape. Midway through their drive, the kidnappers stopped to switch cars. They moved Patricia into the back seat of a station wagon. She was still blindfolded, but at least she was no longer in the trunk. And as long as they kept her blindfolded, she felt a little reassured. If they had allowed her to see their faces, it meant they had no plans of releasing her alive. The kidnappers drove the station wagon to Daly City, California, about 20 miles away from Berkeley. There, they brought Patricia inside a house. They led her to a tiny closet that was just two feet wide, six and a half feet long, and eight feet high. Inside was an old mattress. They closed the door and left her alone in the darkness. Patricia had been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, a radical leftist organization that started in the early 1970s in California's Vacaville prison. A program called the Black Cultural Association paired black Vacaville inmates with white volunteers, mostly university students. The students tutored the inmates in general studies and African heritage. But for one inmate, the Black Cultural Association wasn't enough. Donald DeFries soon started his own prison organization called Unicite, inspired by both the Black Cultural Association and the Black Power Movement. According to Brad Schreiber's book on the Hearst kidnapping, Revolution's End, Unicite's mission was to, quote, reassimilate and re-educate the black male to the needs and responsibilities of the black family and to give the black female an understanding of her past and the relationship between the black male and herself, end quote. The language was vague, but DeFries made up for the muddled mantra with passion and charisma. He convinced several black cultural association mentors and members to join Unicite. They saw him as a revolutionary leader who would help end racism in the United States. DeFries escaped from prison in March of 1973. 
He moved in with two women he'd met through his Black Cultural Association contacts, Nancy Ling Perry and Patricia Ms. Moon Soltisik. The trio gathered a group of their roommates, lovers, and Black Cultural Association members and began planning a revolution. A few months later, the group renamed themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army. Their new mission was to fight against what they deemed a racist, oppressive, unfair, capitalist society. The roughly 12 group members set out to fight the corrupt social system through crime. These crimes included robberies and stealing weapons. Mainly, the group wanted to steal from the rich and help the poor, underprivileged people of America. They also wanted to stop the fascists, though they didn't seem to have a clear view of what that meant or how to go about doing so. When the SLA wasn't getting any attention for their Robin Hooding, they decided to ratchet up their plans and take out a symbol of the oppressor. They chose Marcus Foster, the first black superintendent of the Oakland Unified School District in California, as their target. The SLA believed Foster wanted to control the students of Oakland by forcing them to carry ID cards. They thought he had allowed police to patrol public school campuses. In truth, Foster was against the ID card measures and was working to stop them. He also never allowed police to patrol schools. He was a well-respected leader and had garnered immense community support. But the SLA must not have been aware of this. They murdered him on November 6, 1973, shooting him with cyanide-laced bullets. They proudly took responsibility for Foster's death, certain they would be rewarded by their brothers and sisters in the cause. Instead, they were rejected by other left-wing groups. Two SLA members, Russ Little and Joe Ramiro, were arrested in connection with Foster's murder on January 10, 1974. While Little and Ramiro were members of the SLA, they claimed they were not the ones who actually pulled the trigger. Nevertheless, they remained in police custody. This wrongful imprisonment made Donald DeFreeze angry. He wanted to kidnap a wealthy public figure and use them to negotiate Little and Ramiro's release. At first, they thought a CEO would be a good target, but Patricia Hearst's engagement announcement in the newspaper gave them a burst of inspiration. She was already in the area, a student at Berkeley, and easily within reach. The public would see her as a young, innocent woman. They would be more concerned about her than they would about a CEO. The SLA would get the attention they wanted. And so, on February 4, 1974, they kidnapped Patricia Hearst. It was one of the most sensational, politically motivated kidnappings in the history of the United States. The night of the kidnapping, Patricia sat crunched inside the tiny closet in the SLA's house, still blindfolded, listening through the door. She was starting to distinguish the voices of the different SLA members. When one of them told Patricia that she had been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, she pretended not to recognize the name, but she had heard about the assassination of Marcus Foster. She was frightened, but didn't want to show it. If the SLA could kill Marcus Foster in cold blood, they could do far worse to her. According to American heiress, DeFries told her she had been arrested by a combat unit because her father was a corporate enemy of the people. He told her that she was a POW in the war against fascism. As such, she would be treated in accordance with the Geneva Convention, 
which guarantees certain rights for prisoners. But DeFries also warned her that if the police showed up and tried to rescue her, the SLA would kill her. He seemed very proud of his POW idea and touted the SLA as a global organization. He told Patricia that the SLA had a movement across the state and other members were making coordinated arrests. They weren't. There were only 12 members of the SLA and almost all of them were in the same house as Patricia. Then DeFries left Patricia alone in the closet, blindfolded and tied up with the door closed. She was only allowed out of the closet one time that night to use the bathroom. Her captors led her down the hall, still blindfolded, then back to the closet when she finished. It was dark and stuffy in the tiny room. Patricia tried to find a comfortable spot on the old mattress, afraid of what fate awaited her in the morning. Next, we'll hear Randy and Catherine Hurst's response to the SLA's ransom demands. Now, back to the story. On February 4, 1974, 19-year-old Patricia Hurst was kidnapped by members of the Symbionese Liberation Army. They intended to ransom her for the release of Russ Little and Joe Ramiro, as well as leverage the kidnapping to gain public support. But the next day, no media outlets reported on the kidnapping. Apparently, when Stephen Weed had run through the neighborhood the night before, yelling for someone to call the police, no one had listened. Stephen did eventually go to the police himself on February 5th. They told him that, as a safety precaution, they didn't want any news outlets reporting on the kidnapping. Until they had a sense of what the kidnappers wanted, they didn't want to risk her life by publicizing the abduction. Randy and Catherine Hurst were obviously distraught. They were angry with Stephen for not protecting their daughter. They waited anxiously for any word from Patricia's kidnappers. Finally, on February 7th, three days after the kidnapping, the SLA made contact. They sent a tape-recorded message to a local radio station. Included in the envelope with the tape was Patricia's mobile oil credit card. This was meant to serve as proof that the SLA indeed had Patricia in their custody. The tape said that the SLA was holding Patricia Hurst hostage. She would be killed if the police tried to find her. Any civilians who tried to assist the police in finding Patricia would also be killed. They said nothing about a ransom. Instead, they instructed Randy and Catherine to stand by for further instructions. Meanwhile, Patricia sat locked in the closet, alone, starving, and afraid. While DeFries had initially intended to use Patricia as leverage for Little and Ramiro's release, he started to formulate a new plan. Instead of trading Patricia for SLA members, he would groom her into becoming a member of the SLA herself. It would help to legitimize the organization. At DeFries's instruction, the SLA members gave Patricia a crash course in modern left-wing viewpoints. They read her the Communist Manifesto and George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, as well as other leftist works. While the SLA worked on Patricia's re-education, they also tried to agree on what to ransom her for. They knew they wanted to make an example of her family's wealth by demanding some kind of payment for her safe release. SLA member Bill Harris suggested that they ask the Hearsts to give low-income Californians food as payment for Patricia's release. 
He thought that their previous Robin Hood approach would win people over to their side, supporters they'd lost after murdering Marcus Foster. On February 12, 1974, eight days after the kidnapping, a local radio station received another tape recording from the SLA. On it, DeFries issued his demands. He wanted Randy Hurst to give $70 worth of food to everyone in California who was on welfare of any kind. After he laid out his terms, DeFries handed the mic to Patricia. Before recording, DeFries had prepped Patricia on what he wanted her to say, but he wanted to make sure that she spoke in her own words. She spoke directly to her parents, telling them she was okay and that the SLA were taking good care of her. She warned them to do exactly as the SLA said and not involve the police. She said that the SLA consider themselves to be soldiers who are fighting and aiding these people, and even said that they had never executed anyone themselves. This was, of course, a lie. They had executed Marcus Foster only months before, but with DeFries breathing down her neck, Patricia had to say what would please him. She felt she didn't have another choice. She said in her autobiography, quote, I felt humiliated spitting out their propaganda. At some points, I hardly knew what I was saying, end quote. After hearing the SLA's demands for a food giveaway, Randy Hurst immediately started planning. He was willing to make anything work in order to get his daughter back and quickly gathered as much funding as he could on such short notice. He managed to amass about $2 million, the equivalent of more than $10 million today. They scheduled the food drive for February 22, 1974, two days after Patricia's 20th birthday. There were some problems with the distribution. The event was plagued with disorganization, long lines, and even a riot at one distribution location. But as far as the Hursts were concerned, it was a good showing of faith and fulfilled the SLA's demands. They waited for word on their daughter's release. But they heard nothing from the SLA. On March 3rd, they recorded their own message to send to the group. In it, they appealed to the organization to give them their daughter back. They insisted they had tried their best. Randy and Catherine received another tape on March 9th with DeFries's response. Once again, Patricia spoke on the tape. She said, quote, I'm beginning to feel that the FBI would rather that I get killed. It's the FBI, along with your indifference to the poor and your failure to deal with the people and the SLA in a meaningful, fair way. I don't believe you're doing everything you can, everything in your power, end quote. In her autobiography, Patricia claimed she didn't believe any of what she was saying, but she thought going along with what DeFries wanted would protect her. By this point, Patricia had been locked in the closet 24 hours a day for more than a month. She was fed two meager meals a day. She was only let out when she had to use the bathroom. She was bathed only when she started to smell. She was physically and mentally broken. As a result of this treatment, she had lost weight and her muscles were atrophied from her time in the closet. Her legs were so weak she could barely stand. Patricia was also repeatedly raped by at least two men in the SLA. The men responsible for the assault considered their sexual relations consensual, but Patricia was their captive, making consent impossible. She started to think about the long-term outcome of the abuse. In her autobiography, Patricia wrote, quote, 
If they killed me after all, none of this would matter one bit. If I somehow survived, perhaps these rapes would have helped save my life." End quote. According to multiple rape crisis organizations, including RAIN and Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust, rape victims often experience immense psychological trauma, such as depression, anxiety, self-blame, low self-confidence, and PTSD. Patricia was likely experiencing all of these things, in addition to the fear and anxiety that came with being trapped in a house with her rapists and abusers. Then, one night, DeFries came to the closet and offered her a choice. He said, quote, In other revolutionary movements, when guerrilla fighters capture an enemy soldier, they sometimes give him a choice, fight or die. You can join us and fight with us, and that'll mean you can never go home again, or ever see your folks or your old friends, or you can die, end quote. Both of these options were terrible for Patricia to consider. In her autobiography, she said, quote, I certainly did not want to be killed by them or with them. By agreeing with them, I was taken out of the closet more and more often. They allowed me to eat with them at times, and occasionally I sat blindfolded with them late into the night as they held one of their discussion meetings or study groups, end quote. DeFries even gave Patricia a shotgun and a gas mask that she could use to protect herself from the SLA in the event that the police showed up and they were forced to kill her. DeFries was so confident in his power hold, he didn't even expect Patricia to turn on him. And she didn't. In fact, Patricia appeared to be connecting with the SLA. Her kidnapping is one of the most well-known cases of Stockholm Syndrome, also known as terror bonding or trauma bonding. The term was coined by Swedish criminologist and psychiatrist Nils Bejero after a 1973 robbery hostage situation in Stockholm, Sweden, in which some of the hostages formed relationships with the robbers. Oxford psychology professor Neil Burton said the Stockholm hostages reported fearing the police more than their captors, and after their release, refused to testify against them and even set up a fund to cover their legal defense fees. According to psychologist Joseph M. Carver, four conditions are usually present for a victim to develop Stockholm syndrome. First, there is the presence of a perceived threat to one's physical or psychological survival and the belief that the abuser would carry out the threat. DeFries's threat of join us or die. Exactly. Another factor is the presence of a perceived small kindness from the abuser to the victim. Patricia had already learned through trial and error that reading the SLA's propaganda gave her more freedom. If she read one of their books, she could take her blindfold off. She was even allowed to keep her closet door open. Some members of the SLA would give her extra food and even cigarettes if she acted like their friend. The final factors are isolation from perspectives other than those of the abuser and the perceived inability to escape the situation. She relied on the SLA for her food, water, basic grooming, and safety. She was only exposed to the SLA's propaganda and perspectives. In her autobiography, Patricia says that DeFries once told her that her parents would rather see her dead than give up any of their money or power. Eventually, Patricia saw no way out of the closet, let alone the SLA house, unless she joined them. On April 3, 1974, almost two months to the day since her kidnapping, Patricia pledged to 
devote her life to the struggle for the freedom of all oppressed people. After completing the pledge, the SLA let her take off her blindfold, and she saw her captors for the first time. They let her stay out of the closet. She was finally allowed to roam freely around the house. To cement her place in the organization, DeFries took photos of Patricia posing in front of the SLA flag, wearing a beret and holding a gun. Like the rest of the SLA, she assumed a revolutionary name, Tanya, after Tanya the Gorilla, one of Che Guevara's comrades. With their kidnapping and conversion plot completed, the SLA planned their next crime. They decided to rob a bank in San Francisco, and Tanya would help them. Patricia Hearst had gone full-blown gorilla, and her crime spree was just beginning. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of Patricia's crime spree with the SLA, including the fiery shootout that led to her arrest. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>